Inside the Post-Dispatch. Hey, Liz. Hey, Beth. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm very excited for our guest. The question for today is, if we have a Pulitzer Prize winner on our podcast, can we call our podcast a Pulitzer Prize winning podcast? Oof. That's a lot of peas. I think it's an adjacency thing, you know? Okay, uh. yeah. <laughs> but not winning. Um, so as we're saying, today we're very excited to welcome our colleague, Tony Messenger, onto the podcast. Tony is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who has been a Metro columnist at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch since September of 2015. Prior to becoming a columnist, Tony worked as the editorial page editor and editorial writer and originally a reporter at the paper. Uh, he joined the Post-Dispatch in March of 2008. Welcome, Tony. So good to be here, Liz and Beth. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Is it strange to have kind of you know, the past, you know, however many years of your career read to you back that way? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. I start I start to feel uh, a, a little bit old when I think about it. I, I had a conversation with somebody the other day in which I actually verbalized that I've now been writing four columns a week for seven years. And it um, struck me that that's a long time. I haven't actually added up how many columns <laughs> I've had during that time, but um, it's, Don't make it's, me a, do it's, it's a good run and, and I have a great job. So happy to uh, continue to be able to do it. I'm pulling out my calculator. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> okay, uh, yeah. 50, Three journalists 50, still require calculators. That's about like 1,400 columns That's i mean great. giving you some you know yeah. weeks off you know i did take like some time off occasionally <laughs> right and right all of yeah that, and so. your job has changed which we're gonna uh, get into here first it's changed over the years so since 2008 um i think first for our listeners who are unfamiliar with the role of a columnist in a newspaper can you explain to us how your work differs from that of our newsroom reporters well and specifically a metro column which is which is sort of a unique animal in journalism i write generally speaking, not in every case, but generally speaking, a reported column, uh, which means I'm using the voice of, of other people to help tell the story that I want to tell. Uh, and so I'm often doing the same sorts of reporting that our other reporters are, but because I'm a columnist, I present my stories in a particular framing. And, and generally speaking, that is the framing, the part of the story that I'm interested in, that I think is the most important, mm -hmm. uh, that I think is most significant. And so I use the people that I interview uh, to help tell that story. There are times when I write in the first person. I occasionally write about, you know, my family. I tend to write once every couple of years a youth sports story that's, you know, <laughs> that's something that's that's sort of personal and that sort of thing. Um, but generally speaking, I write a reported column that has, you know, it's got a framing to it. It's got um, an edge and a focus to it that is uh, different than uh, a, a straight news story because I'm clearly taking a side and readers clearly know uh, through my background, through what I've you know written in columns over the time, uh, and sometimes specifically in a column, if I if I have a specific opinion, uh, I occasionally state one in the column. Uh, that's what makes it different than uh, you know what you generally read in in our other news pages. As you said, readers generally, well, at first they don't know, but after four years, I'm sure they do. They kind of know that you come at different news stories from a specific angle. And just from reading the comments on your, your columns, um, people react to them in a lot of different ways, some negative, some positive. Is there a specific topic that you didn't think was going to be controversial when you began writing about it, and it turned out to be very controversial or more controversial than you thought it would be? Um, 
Actually, I would I would say I want to answer that with 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 a sort of an opposite answer. The 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 topic that I write about the most, criminal justice reform, mm-hmm. um, tends to be, and one of the reasons that I write about it the most is because it is more bipartisan mm-hmm. than many of the other things that I write about. It is something that. Um, often transcends arguments on both the left and the right. And so frequently, not always, but frequently when I write about debtors' prisons, when I write about um, the criminalization of poverty, in particular uh, problems with the criminal justice system that need to be fixed, I it's one of those times where I get emails from folks on the right mm-hmm. who don't like it if I write about abortion or guns or race or uh, or, or many other things. But or, or if I say something nice about Cory Bush, you know, the folks who love to write me angry emails often write me emails when I write about criminal justice reform that say that start something along the lines of I normally hate you, but uh, <laughs> and it's it's been fascinating to me um, that that topic uh, draws so much interest on on the left and the right. And it's one of the reasons that I keep writing about it. Interesting. And we will definitely come back to that. But we did want to talk about a couple of recent columns. You mentioned abortion. And one of your recent columns was about abortion. It was um, basically you wrote about uh, asking the question based on the recent leak of the Roe versus Wade. um, Well, I guess the decision. Supreme Court draft opinion. Thank you. The Supreme Court draft opinion. you ask this question in a column, the political world, particularly on the Republican side, has changed a lot since 2007, but the polling on abortion restrictions has not. So you ask this question in your column, but I kind of want to ask it to you. What what comes next if the Supreme Court vacates nearly 50 years of precedent and overturns Roe? What do you see happening locally, especially? Well, I think we're already seeing some of that. I think it actually energizes... Um, the left in a way that 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 hasn't particularly been energized on that issue, uh, and and potentially changes the 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 terms of debate for the midterm. Um, what was interesting about that column is one of the things that I try to do with my column is provide context right. to news stories that that sometimes for whatever reason just because the news story is about here's the news of the day this is what's happening today i often use my column particularly on missouri issues to provide a a historical context it's Mm -hmm. one of the things about being an old capital reporter where i used (laughs) to cover the capital and i covered some of these issues you know five ten years ago when they were happening so there's a column on abortion obviously a, a a a touchstone topic the sort of topic that gets people on, on the left and the right, very angry. And and I wasn't writing a particular pro-choice or pro-life column. Mm-hmm. I was writing a column just providing context to how the debate has changed, particularly on the Republican side, reminding people that in 2012, not all that long ago, uh, uh, Todd Akin was famously, uh, you know, stepped away from by other Republicans in Missouri and nationally because of his comments about legitimate rape. Right. And and, and the context there was he believed in, in banning abortion, even in cases of rape and incest. Well, at the time in 2012, uh, most Missouri Republicans weren't that extreme in the position. They wanted there to be legal abortion for certain circumstances, the, the, the safety of the mother and everything. It was one of those places where that was in the mainstream of Republican thought. Um, 
it's still in the mainstream of Republican thought when you look at the polling. It's mm -hmm. definitely in the mainstream of, of American thought when you look at the polling. And so that was the, the context I was trying to bring, because when you look at the, the leaked opinion, when you look at the new Texas law, when you look at the proposed Louisiana law, when you look mm -hmm. at what some Republicans are pushing uh, for law in Missouri, they're talking about total bans. They're talking about the same stuff that Todd Akin was talking about. And now that apparently is mainstream Republican thought. And, and part of the point of the column was that's completely out of whack with consistent Gallup polling over the years. Right. And that tells me that likely there will be election consequences if that becomes the, the primary Republican position. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Um, I think that, you know, it, it's interesting in your column, you noted how there are bills that are not currently law that would not be, they're not current trigger laws in Missouri, but that mirror the um, individual, like that target uh, people individually who have had abortions. Uh, and that's obviously state law in Texas now. Um, so it will be interesting in the next few months to see both on the national and state stage how this plays out. I, I can't imagine that voters aren't going to react to that in a really negative fashion if that becomes widespread law like it is in Texas. Because when you talk to, and, and, and I got emails from people responding to that column, and some of the folks on the right, uh, uh, again, sometimes when you just write about a topic and you say the word abortion, they're immediately defensive. Oh, mm -hmm. I'm going to hate this messenger column. Um, and and sometimes I have interactions with those readers where I'm like, did, did you actually read it? Or are you just <laughs> responding to the headline because you, you saw that I wrote about abortion? And, and we'll go back and forth. And I, I did that with a couple of readers on this particular column. And they agreed with me. They were in that mainstream of polling. They were mm -hmm. they were Republicans who believe in exceptions, mm -hmm. um, and and they're framing the abortion ruling as a states' rights ruling. Mm -hmm. They believe in states' rights. Now, if that's truly what they believe, if that's the argument that this is a states' rights decision, and I don't believe that that's the case, but if that's really their argument, then clearly they would be opposed to a Texas-style law that says we're going to now punish our citizens if they go to another state, or we're going to find a way to punish people in another state that, that help uh, through sort of the new underground abortion railroad to, to, mm -hmm. to help women seek a legal abortion, say in Illinois or Colorado, places where there's still a, a, a fair amount of legality without uh, so many hoops to, to have to go through. So. Um, if it's really a states' rights issue, then then Republicans uh, who are writing me on it will will push back if Missouri goes that far and says, "Yep, we're going to punish you if you uh, go across the border to Illinois," because that's not really a states' rights issue. Now you're now you're saying, "Well, we can have our law, and Illinois can't have their law." Uh, yeah. That's that that becomes very much of a federal issue, and so I think that's where. The abortion debate is going to turn if indeed Roe gets overturned. Um, and, you know, it'll be interesting to see if people stick to their guns in terms of the, the Gallup polling, in terms of what people really believe in. Uh, and if so, it's, gonna, it's going to change the nature of both Republican and Democratic politics in the next couple of cycles. 
Another one of your recent columns that we want to chat about today was headlined, City Delays Evictions Works on Options for Riverfront Homeless Camp. And in this column, you profiled a man named JB, who's been living at uh, the former Admiral, kind of the the dock, if you will, of that former casino um, in an encampment with others since this past winter that the city recently came out and said, you know, we're basically going to kick you down the road or you can't be here. Um, tell us a little bit about why that column was important to you and how you think that this persistent issue in the city needs to be addressed or could be addressed um, by the current administration. So one of the great things about that column is is it changed the news while I was working on it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that happens sometimes. And sometimes it's really rewarding and sometimes it's, it's really frustrating. Um, but so uh, Christine Ingracia, the alderwoman from St. Louis from the Sixth Ward, had called me to tell me about this situation and, and, and say, look, you know, these folks have been there a long time. If there's, if there's a place for a, a tent city that sort of makes sense, it's this area. There aren't that many of them. There's not really a problem. But the city's closing them down and claiming that there's a crime problem. And I, I just don't see one. And she told me that she had asked for the... Um, uh, the the justification from the city and didn't get any documents. So I filed a Sunshine Law request that day uh, with the with the police department for uh, calls of service to that area, and they gave me all the calls to service uh, on Lenore K Sullivan Boulevard, and almost all of them were further south. Many of them were related to uh, some of the cruising that's been going on. Mm-hmm. Almost none of them had anything to do with the, the riverfront encampment, the riverfront community. Uh, and so when I called the mayor's office and said, look, I'm working on this column. You've got an alder person who's being critical of it. Uh, I've talked to the folks there. They, they don't think there's a problem. They say they've been talking to you for the past several months about you know uh, what to do about their facility and make sure that they have uh, healthcare needs met and that sort of thing. And by the way, I got the public safety report and uh, what uh, acting public safety director Dan Isom said about that homeless camp does not meet what the public records say. And so I'm working on this column, does the mayor's office have any comment? Um, and before the column, well actually, just about 20 minutes after the column posted, uh, they announced that they were giving the riverfront community uh, some extra time. Uh, it turns out that the that the narrative that they had put out there about why they were closing it wasn't all that accurate. Uh, and so they reacted, and they reacted in a positive way. I love it when I bring to light a problem and our government officials realize whether it's for cynical reasons, Tony's going to make us look bad, or whether it's for uh, you know high high-minded reasons of hey, you know what, he's right. There's the, there's no reason for us to push them out. Let's let's get some more time and let's try to figure something out. So that's what they decided to do with that particular camp is give them more time. I, I write a lot on on homeless issues uh, because it's such an ongoing problem in our community. And it's a problem that is that touches so many other issues, um, and um, and it's tough to deal with. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of people in this community who really care about that issue, yes. who really try hard to deal with it. I believe there are a lot of government officials whose hearts are in the right place, who are who are trying hard to deal with it. And the strategies change, and the people change, uh, but it's a persistent problem, and it is a problem that. I want my readers to see because it's it's a problem that reflects on our community and our values. One of the things that you mentioned in that, that column is 
you know, the, basically that you were hoping that the mayor's administration would find kind of alternate ways to address homelessness rather than moving people out of encampments that they have created communities around and, and hopefully have found safety in. Do you see your role as a, a columnist on other issues as well as pointing out solutions or more pointing out the issue? I, I like to look for solutions. So okay. one of the things that that column referenced, and, and the the mayor's office is already ahead of me on there. They visited Denver last year, my hometown, uh, and Denver is following this new philosophy of intentional encampments, mm -hmm. where rather than constantly shutting down uh, tent cities and moving them around, they're trying to get ahead of the problem by building their own intentional tent cities in areas where they can create security and health care and, and safety and uh, uh, not, not have uh, too many problems with local businesses so that the pop-up tent cities don't, don't happen. Now, that's not a perfect solution, but it's a solution that has worked to some degree there. And uh, Mayor Tashara Jones is trying to do that here, but she's also running into problems with aldermen saying, not in my backyard, right. which is the constant issue that mm -hmm. you have with uh, with homelessness, with affordable housing, uh, with all of that issue is, you know, neighborhoods, uh, uh, public officials often are like, yeah, we want to fix that problem, but we don't want to fix it right here. And so uh, the mayor had a plan to actually put an intentional encampment uh, not all that far from where the riverfront uh, community is. Um, and uh, Alderman pushed back on it. And so it hasn't happened yet. And so you know, one of the things I like to do uh, when I can, when I think that there is a, a, a good solution forward, uh, is is push for it. Mm -hmm. So going back to my debtor's prisons col columns, I mean, there was, there was clearly legislation that ended up getting filed because of the columns that I was writing. And I clearly used my column uh, uh, to push for that legislation to pass because it was a good idea. Yeah. And how does that feel to, you know, and we talked about earlier that in your columns, I don't know if you would say that you have a voice, but it's like you share anecdotes, you share things from your life. And I think it does create, um, you know, a closeness with readers that we, we don't have, right, with reporters. Um, so one, I guess, to be able to affect people's lives, my question is two part. One is to have that effect on people's lives and two, to kind of have this long term and ongoing conversation with readers. Well, the relationship with readers, I'll start with that, is, is important in part because when I get into those controversial topics that I know some readers aren't going to like, yeah. <laughs> the fact that I have a connection with them allows us to continue our conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a reader that, that writes to me regularly who is a self-described lifelong Republican who frequently disagrees with me. Not always, but frequently disagrees with me. Well, he and I both... Uh, uh, got uh, the same treatment for throat cancer years ago, both both in remission and healthy and everything else. We actually met at Mercy when we were there for uh, a, a meeting of, of uh, cancer survivors talking mm -hmm. about treatment at Mercy and trying to help them, uh, you know, do what they do better and, 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 and help patients and their families better. And so I've written about my cancer and have that connection to readers in that mm -hmm. capacity. Uh, Bill McClellan has, has, mm -hmm. has done the same sort of thing. Yeah. And what happens is you, you get a connection to readers because of a shared lived experience mm -hmm. in which now some of them are willing to 
get over the fact that they disagree with you yeah. sometimes <laughs> vehemently um, because they have some connection. Oh, Tony has teenagers the same age as mine, and we've been through that same sort of youth sports thing. Oh, I get him. Um, or, or, you know, I talk about where I live and I talk about what my family's doing. And those connections, it's just life. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you look at the divided political time we're in right now, particularly in the last year, two years of, of, of the pandemic, where we haven't had a lot of the sort of interaction like we have now, three people, three colleagues in the same room, and we haven't had much of this in the last couple of years. Um, those personal connections that we make with our friends and neighbors and family is, is, is what allows us to get beyond political differences. And so it's important for me uh, to do that. What was the first part of the question? That was such a great answer that I almost forgot the first part. Um, just to have this kind of effect on whether it be the mayor's administration taking a second look at, you know, tearing down a homeless encampment or, I mean, the, maybe the most ultimate example, being able to affect change in these so-called debtor, Missouri debtors prisons um, that your work did several years ago. It's really satisfying. It's something that um, it's not always a goal with a column, but... Um, but I like it when I can affect change. One of the one of the things that happens sometimes, and I I don't usually write much about it afterward. I, I have once or twice, but um, you know I often write about people who are in a vulnerable situation. I wrote not long ago about several people who got illegally locked out of their apartment. They were mm -hmm. poor. The landlord didn't want them anymore, didn't want to go through the legalized eviction yeah. process and literally just locked them out and tried to push them out. And, uh, that was they a hard column to read. Yeah, they ended up getting legal representation and um, uh, you know, getting some help. But when I write about people that are stuck in that cycle of poverty, um, sometimes through no fault of their own, I often get response from readers saying, I want to help this person. How can I help this person? Mm -hmm. And one of the women that I wrote about who uh, lost her apartment in those uh, two or three columns that I wrote, uh, a reader wanted to help them. They, she was facing the difficulty of trying to find a new apartment because rents have gotten up so much. Mm -hmm. um, and I put that person in touch with the uh the person that I had written about through their lawyer and they were able to give him some financial help. So wow. post-dispatch readers, uh, much like we do very publicly in our, uh, around Christmas time with the series that we run, the hundred neediest, um, post-dispatch readers often write me or call me after a column and say, I want to help this person and I want to be anonymous and I don't want to make a big deal out of it, but uh, they deserve a little help. And, and they frequently help the people that I write about. And it's really satisfying when something like that happens. Uh, I don't often write about it because normally the readers, when they, when they ask me about that, they're like, look, I, I don't want any publicity. I just want to help this person. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's another side of that coin as well. Um, you, it sounds like you actually do quite a bit of emailing or phone calls or responding to readers. How do you handle some of the vitriol that you, you might receive from people? So I try to give everybody at least one shot. Okay. Um, unless they just really come at me. I mean, I get some horribly racist type responses. And, and when people come at me like that, I usually just ignore them. Um, but when I get people who make assumptions about who I am, make assumptions about the column, particularly when it's clear they haven't read the entire column. Right. Mm -hmm. um, 
I, I, I try to give every reader at least one shot. So I'll respond and I'll say, uh, what was it specifically that you didn't like about this? Oh, you seem to think I only criticize Republicans. Did you see this column that I wrote about, you know, XYZ politician? And I'll, and I'll sh- share a link with them. I'll do something like that. And what frequently happens, I had a couple of responses uh, like this recently, is they're surprised I responded. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and particularly when they were, you know, angry in their in their response to me, and I was nice to them, and and they apologize, yeah. and they don't necessarily agree with me, but they appreciate that um, that I responded and that I that I care about them. Now, some folks, there's just no having a discussion, right? Um, and and some of those folks still write me every day. <laughs> Uh, and I don't respond to them every day, <laughs> but but I respond to them every once in a while. I mean, I I appreciate that they're still reading my column, right. and I let them know occasionally that they're still reading my column. Uh, particularly that once every six months, where they're like, "Wow, I agreed with you today. Something's wrong with me." Um, oh, gosh, there's a guy there's a guy on Twitter uh, who, who's a local community member who who likes to every once in a while go. Oh shoot! I'm past my quota of agreeing with Tony three times in a year, uh, and 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 we joke back and forth about that. So, on Twitter, on Facebook, in email, uh, I respond to folks um, because, unlike you, Beth, I'm not paid to do so. I do not read the comments um, uh, unless somebody directs me to one in particular uh, that that might be a, a a news angle or something. But right. uh, but I respond to people on email pretty consistently, including those who disagree with me. Um, the ones who become my regulars, my uh, everyday you know, sort of emailers, they get a response every once in a while. Um, but they know I'm reading their emails. And right. I think that makes them happy. And, and so people read the column for a lot of different reasons. And the fact that they keep coming back then is, is, is paid back when I write about some topic that you know, they didn't expect out of me. I wrote a column the other day about a guy that I used to cover the state Senate with, Bob Pretty, who is a retired reporter who's now on this campaign uh, against the sports wagering bills in the Mm -hmm. legislature, Mm -hmm. not because he's against betting, but because he wants the tax to be higher. He wants Mm -hmm. the casinos and and the folks who are taking advantage of of gambling in the state to pay a higher tax to help uh, fund education. But what's really driving his effort is this effort to to save this steamship museum that's in Kansas City that might end up moving. And so it, it was a it was a totally out of the blue kind of column that was, you know, not on a topic. I mean, I write about legislation, but this wasn't about legislation as much as it was about this cool steamship museum yeah. <laughs> that, that 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 talks about Missouri history. Uh, and I'm actually working on a follow up for it for uh, later this week because um, there's another community closer to St. Louis that is also trying to get that steamship museum, and and they called me after that column. So so a lot of times a reader <laughs> wow. a reader will right res- a reader will uh, will respond uh, to something that's like wow I I didn't know Tony cared about steamships. Well, it's like, <laughs> I do now. I <laughs> yeah. found it really interesting, and and so then you know you get new readers that way, and and they you know th- there are some readers that that will write me when I write a column like that, and they're like, more of this, more of this. Don't write about the things that make me angry. I like this. This yeah. makes me happy. And Tony, another recent column that you wrote was headlined "Guns Become Leading Cause of Child Deaths, But Missouri Looks the Other Way," 
And in that, you shared a pretty startling statistic um, that in a letter in the New New England Journal of Medicine, three researchers from the University of Michigan wrote that in 2020, guns became the leading cause of death among children and teens for the first time, uh, according to statistics from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And you went on to write, with guns, though, particularly in a place like Missouri, where Republicans hold a supermajority in the legislature, there is no movement to protect our children from death. Instead, there is a misguided belief that the price we pay for the Second Amendment is the death of our children in schools, in movie theaters, or sleeping in their beds as random bullets whiz past. Um, Talk to us a little bit about what inspired you to write this column in this moment, and then also um, the Second Amendment Preservation Act in Missouri, which you also talk about in the column. I want to to take, take you back a little bit. One of the reasons I write a lot about guns is back when Columbine happened. I, I grew up in Littleton, uh, oh. not far from Columbine. And I was a publisher of a business magazine when Columbine happened. I was living in Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, I had uh, four kids that, that lived in Colorado at the time, uh, went to a different high school. And Columbine really affected me. I got back into journalism writing specifically because of Columbine. Um, I wrote a column about it when it happened, and, and the staff at the business magazine where I was a publisher came to me and said, wow, we didn't know you could do that. And it was because I was doing business stuff. You know, yeah, I was right, reading, right. reading P&Ls and trying to make money for the, for the publication and doing all of that. And it really helped me realize, you know, I don't want to be a publisher for the rest of my life. I need to get back to writing. I need to, I need to pursue some of the stuff that that I hadn't done yet. And so guns really in in a lot of ways contributed to how I ultimately became the Metro columnist at the Post-Dispatch. And sadly, we have this this long history of, um, you know, every summer we we end up having, you know, kids dying in tragic death and, and, and everybody says they want to do something about it, but the mm-hmm. legislature makes it impossible. Even if St. Louis leaders as they frequently have, get together and say, hey, we want to do some some basic sense, you know, common sense things to uh, try to keep guns out of the hands of kids. Mm-hmm. Um, the legislature makes it all but impossible. Um, and, you know, so I, I try to highlight that madness that um, it's not like there's an easy solution to the gun problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if, if guns were the solution, uh, the United States would be the least violent country in the world because we have more guns per capita than any other place, uh, and we keep going the wrong direction. and And it's just it's just tragic to me that we that we can't. Again, you come back to the polling. Uh, Americans believe in background checks. Americans believe in 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 limiting uh, assault weapons and some of these things. And and a lot of the tragic deaths that we have in St. Louis, they aren't all related to assault weapons. They mm-hmm. aren't, you know, mass shootings. But but there's lots of things we could do to try to reduce the amount of gun violence in our city. And our local leaders aren't allowed to do any of it. And it's just it's it's frustrating. It's hard to write about. Um, every time I write a column like that, this one uh, specifically was like that. I go back and I search the archives, and I've written about ten versions of that column mm-hmm. uh, in 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 the last seven years, and it's frustrating. Uh, but I try to keep telling myself, don't get to that point where you don't want to write it anymore, because you just have to keep 
uh, pounding home the issue that this is a problem in our community. It's a problem everybody knows about. It's a problem everybody says they want to do something about. But the fact is, it's mostly black kids who are dying. Uh, and, and we have to bring that to the attention of the state legislature, which is run by mostly white people. Um, that if they really care about uh, death and crime in the city, which they love to talk about, uh, then it's not just more cops, it's getting rid of guns. And the police chiefs tell them that over and over again. Um, The police chiefs went to the legislature and said, don't pass this ridiculous Second Amendment Preservation Act that makes it impossible for us to enforce federal gun laws. Mm -hmm. Um, And the legislature did it anyway. And, And so... It's why I keep writing about it and, and hopefully highlighting uh, the absurdity of the state of gun laws in the state of Missouri. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Before we leave, I do want to ask you, as we do with most of our guests, what are you working on? What's next? So one of the things that I've been working on the last few days, and I don't know what it's going to become yet, but I got a call from a woman after I wrote about the riverfront community mm. of, of homeless folks who live along the, uh, the Mississippi River in downtown St. Louis, and, and she is a homeless person, uh, but she's a different sort of homeless person. She is a 61-year-old woman. She's a veteran. Um, she lost her house, um, doesn't have any family. She lives on disability, and her disability is related to a sexual assault from when she was in the military. And, and, and she just has this really tragic story. And the reason she called me is she said, you know, there are a lot of us that are homeless that actually don't get counted as homeless. And she's one of them. And the reason is she has enough money from her disability to be able to get uh, hotel rooms every now and then. So she stays in a hotel room when she can. When her disability money runs out, she stays in her car. She's got a storage unit where the stuff that used to be in her old family house uh, from from Ferguson uh, was. And so she has some income you know, coming from the federal government. She has some um, um, uh, ability to take care of herself, but she's got mental health needs. Mm-hmm. And and she's sort of, you know, one of these hidden homeless people. And I talked to a couple of experts that I know in this field, uh, and they tell me that, that there really is a massive problem in this area that a lot of the veterans, for instance, who have that disability income for PTSD or whatever else, but are still dealing with mental health issues, they're homeless, but they don't always get counted in the homeless population because they're able to to hold down a job for a period of time. They're able to hold down housing for a period of time, mm-hmm. but actually they're frequently homeless. And um, so I've been talking to her and talking to experts about her story, and there's, there's definitely something really interesting there. Uh, I haven't figured out if it's a column yet or if it's a series of columns or, or what it is, but uh, it's one of those things that has my attention that um, I may not write about it for a couple of months, but, but it's, it's, a, it's an important story worth telling. Yeah, we'll look forward to reading it as well as the other three columns a week that you write. (laughs) Yeah, Tony, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. We really enjoyed this conversation. You're welcome. And for the listeners, uh, thank you for joining us. And a reminder that we will be off next week and then back the week after. Have a great week. Yeah, enjoy your week.